Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome back to Hybrid Unlimited. It is me, Steffi Cohen. And your co-host, Hayden Bow. And we also have Ian Kaplan, but he's not here to film the introduction. Today, we sit down with Dr. Craig Liebenson. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Dr. Liebenson. He is a doctor and chiropractor. He is a coach. And he's also an author of an amazing spine rehabilitation book. And today we sit down and we talk about the difference between being a therapist and being a coach. What is the coach mindset? We talk about what the upstream influences of health are that he discusses at length in his book. We talk about having a patient-centered approach. And most importantly, we talk about breaking dichotomies between different um worlds and different ways of thinking as far as uh, therapy, rehabilitation, chiropractic care goes. This episode is brought to you by Go Strong Equipment. Now, we tell you every episode how great their equipment is. It's the best quality and all that stuff, but we don't want to bore you with that too much. So I'm just going to talk about what you really care about. It's simply the coolest stuff. All right. It's like the Apple versus PC commercials. You know, if you come up to me with your dorky PC. I don't care. I just want the cool thing. And I'm telling you, Go Strong is the cool thing. They're the new kids on the block. They got that shiny new equipment. It looks the best. It works the best. If you don't want to be a dork, get Go Strong equipment. And they have the best customer care. Okay. Without further ado, let's start episode 21 of Hybrid Unlimited. Perfect. Amazing. Dr. Levinson, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to sit down and do these, this podcast. We really appreciate it. I was just looking through your resume and it's pretty, pretty remarkable. So I'm really excited to get to know you a little bit more and talk about what you've done in the past and what projects you have on the go. Well, I, your, your resume speaks speaks volumes to me. <laughs> I, I'm thrilled to be here with you, Steffi. I appreciate it. Why don't we start by uh, giving our listeners some background about who you are, what you do, what you've done, and start from there. Sure. Uh, my name is Craig Liebenson. I'm a chiropractor in Los Angeles. I'm a student of uh, Dr. Carol Levitt and Professor Vladimir Yanda from Prague. I started studying with them when I was just starting off chiropractic school. Um, they're both neurologists who have passed away, uh, but shaped my career. Um, Dr. Levitt was always very inspiring because he kept learning new things. And of course, Professor Yonda is known as the father of rehabilitation medicine. Um, and I think his ideas have shaped a lot of the things that we talk about today about health span. Since he was ahead of the curve, warning people about the dangers of sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of people forget all of the positive contributions that Janda had and focus on or criticize some of the ones that, you know, maybe are considered old or, or that have been kind of like uh, evolved, updated. Yeah. Throughout the years. Yeah, yeah they, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to criticize uh, what I was doing even three months ago. So criticizing what somebody said uh, 20 years ago or 40 years ago is um, is a, a conversation starter I'm, I'm, uh, I think we should all be skeptical skeptical but not cynical um, 
I prefer to be a skeptical optimist, though. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the important part is we all obviously make mistakes and not only mistakes, but we obviously have certain ideas and theories that prove not to be true in the following, like you said, months or years or who knows. I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that they hold that particular idea over people's head. And then it's almost like they don't want to listen to anything else that they said because of. Yeah. I think people do the best they can with the information they have at a certain time. And then often they build, you know, a platform off of those ideologies and it becomes very difficult to disconnect themselves from them because it means, you know, they either have to fight for this thing that they said, you know, and built everything off of, or they have to start over from scratch, you know, with the new, new ideologies. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty sad, sad state of affairs. If somebody feels that they have to, um, hold on to something, we call it a status quo bias and it does nothing, uh, but raise your cortisol. And right now with with COVID-19, I think if nothing else, we can see how the Venice canals are clearing, the air over Beijing is clearing, um, and uh, maybe we can reflect about our, our past mistakes with open-mindedness. Yeah, absolutely. We can learn. We can learn. You said something really interesting, Steffi. You almost were quoting Dr. Levitt. He, he wrote a, a letter to one of my friends, uh, Maria Perry in New York, and he said, we should keep an open mind for new ideas that sometimes show what we thought or believed before was wrong. Yeah. To me, that's the, the mindset of a scientist, of a very humble person who, who wants to make progress because they want to stress test things, and they are seeking failure. We're not seeking to prove ourselves right. We're seeking to prove ourselves wrong so we don't waste our time. Uh, and then we get, we never find truth. We're never right. But we get closer and closer to things that are more actionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long, like you said, as long as you have an open mind and you are willing to evolve your ideas and your thought process, then there's, there's no wrong, really, I think. Why don't we, why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how your, your, your theories and your framework and the way that you treat has changed over the years and kind of what kind of influence have those, uh, people had on your, on your development as a chiropractor? Well, I don't see myself as a chiropractor as much as, as a coach. So, um, I, I don't really feel like I'm doing treatments as much as guiding by the side. Uh, there's a nice metaphor, um, uh, Alfred as opposed to Batman. So when I started off in practice, you know, it was very important for me to lay my hands on people, even though I already believed in rehab. Uh, but as I've gone on, I'm more interested in helping people to gain confidence and self-efficacy. And, and if I guide by the side, rather than uh, put on a fix-it hat, I can achieve that because when I make a person feel better and they go, oh, my God, how would you find that? You have the best hands. Or even with a corrective exercise where I find an imbalance or something um, and show them how to, how to uh, reduce the imbalance, um, they feel like they need me. And it reminds me of what Pavel Satsalin says, that uh, leave your corrective exercises outside of my gym. Um, he Why says is that? If, if, if you scan your carcass or... 40 minutes with foam rolling and find every tender point and uh, 
eventually you have no will left to lift. How, uh, how would you define a corrective exercise? Well, that's a good question. I used to, I used to know the answer to that. I feel when I'm, um, I feel that I don't even have an assessment. Uh, Yonda taught that every exercise is a test and, and a lot of people fall in love with screens. I think, uh, that when I'm preparing somebody, when I'm doing a movement prep, that is my screen. And if today is squat day or today is a pull day, um, uh, once I prepared you for that, prepared your feet, apparently prepared uh, some hip mobility and shoulder mobility, gotten you physiologically warmed up so your heart rate is up and core body temperature is up, prepared your pillar. Um, uh, in the process of preparing you for the big lifts, for the marquee lifts, for the GPP for the day, um, I'll have learned about your readiness and your preparedness. Mm -hmm. It is a movement prep. So it, every exercise a test. So, so I'm going to find if you have a impingement in your left hip, let's say. That would be a common one, like in a shin box or a 90-90 position. And then before we go and, and, and let's say, um, do any single leg bias work, I'm probably going to do something that I know uh, will help that uh, weak link. Um, I don't consider it anymore a corrective. Um, I don't like the term because I think the term itself suggests that you were incorrect. You just weren't fully prepared. So even saying that somebody has dysfunction, we, we get people um, uh, mesmerized by trivial dysfunctions. And load is the best corrective. So if load is the best corrective, why would we want to weigh somebody down these nocebos? Mm -hmm. I've heard you say it all the time, too. Uh, I'm guessing that's why you asked that pretty much any exercise has the potential to be a quote unquote corrective exercise, mm -hmm. depending on what your goal is. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you say when you say that you this is super interesting to me when you say that you don't have um, a particular assessment, this just does it mean that you don't subscribe to say obviously like an FMS or or you know kind of like a step A B C D. You just have people move and do a warm up and whatnot, and you observe and based on that you gather information to to guide your the treatment for that day or for the training. Yes and no. I love the FMS. Um, what I love about it, though, aren't the seven tests. I love the scoring, especially the idea that there's acceptable and unacceptable dysfunction. So I feel that uh, perfection is the enemy of, of progress. Perfection is the enemy of good, um, as uh, an Ebola expert just, just uh, suggested a few days ago. Um, we get trapped into uh, micromanaging trivial dysfunctions. Um, and I think Gray was really clear that if he had to do it over again, he said this at Stanford when I hosted him and Professor McGill, he said if he had to do it over again, he would have gotten rid of the zero to three and made it zero to two. And I think a lot of people, they struggle to appreciate what which category he would have got rid of. Um, it, in reality, he wanted us to merge the two and the, and the three. For people who don't know, can you explain the uh, grading category of yeah, the so FMS? Yeah, so zero is, uh, is pain, okay. and it's not discomfort. So on a thermometer zero to 10, uh, pain might be like a, a three to 10 or a four to 10, uh, not a zero to two or a zero to three. 
So, so in his scoring, a zero is pain. A one is unacceptable dysfunction. So something you wouldn't train. It, it lacks a foundation. It's um, something where uh, if you loaded it, you, you would just be loading dysfunction and nothing good would come. Uh, a two is acceptable dysfunction. And uh, we may actually need to load the two in order to help a person learn how to use the ground and find their strength. Uh, when you use kettlebells, as an example, um, uh, if you're doing a press, a strict press with a barbell, um, if you follow a, a certain tempo, you're gonna find the slot on your own. If I guide by the side and don't micromanage telling you where your knee or your spine should be, uh, you're gonna figure out how to lift that weight and, and you're gonna find it for yourself and you're gonna learn how to generate force and create stability. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a three is pristine. So uh, when you're doing a, a, a one RM, uh, you're never pristine. Uh, if you're a professional power lifter or a PGA golfer, on the practice range, you're probably going to be pristine a lot of the time because you're, you're an elite amongst the elite. But even Lee Trevino, one of the greatest golfers in history, said the person who wins in competition uh, at the highest level of, of, of his sport, golf, um, is the one who has the best misses. So... Uh, I think when Gray talks about the FMS, the scoring is genius. So we always want to know, is it, is it, is it, is it painful? Uh, is it uh, dysfunctional? Uh, or is it acceptable? And I apply that to everything. I, I ask everybody that I'm with to be able to tell me what were the painful movements or the provocative movements? What was mechanically sensitive? Um, What's defined uh, what as had, dysfunctional? Uh, what had unacceptable dysfunction and, and what was acceptable? What's, uh, how, do you, how do you determine whether something's dysfunctional or not? Or unacceptably or dysfunctional or unacceptably yeah. dysfunctional. Well, the, the, one of the first things <laughs> I learned from Chad Waterbury, who, who wrote one of my favorite chapters in my functional training handbook on rate of, rate of force development, is when uh, the concentric phase, if you're cueing somebody triphasically to lower slower, and to to, um, uh, uh, to speed up or to have as fast as much explosion as possible in the concentric, uh, when they lose their maximum velocity, or if you can measure bar velocity, when you lose peak velocity, that's a sign that the set is over. Um, if uh, you have um, unacceptable form, if somebody's the jerking the weight too much. Um, if uh, they're holding the barbell and their shoulders are coming uneven, uh, those would be signs of a lack of technical proficiency. We always want technical proficiency. Yeah. I, um, I, I actually had a question that you touched on earlier. You said most of the time when people come into your office, um, you're not putting your hands on them. But is there what are scenarios where, you know, it would be a time for you to put on your fix it hat and put your hands on somebody just because I know there's going to be people listening who, you know, go to their chiropractors after this. And if we don't adjust it, you know, maybe they go to get an adjustment and, uh, they think, they think their chiro's a quack all of a sudden. <laughs> if they don't adjust them or if they, if they do get adjusted after hearing this, you know, I just want to, I, I just want to see what the, what the scenario is where you, you know, where you think it'd be I think appropriate. It's the opposite. I think most people don't know I'm a chiropractor. They, they know that I'm a lifestyle coach. 
that I'm going to deal with SNAPs, whether they, their habits are conducive or not to lowering their biological age, such as smoking, nutrition, alcohol, physical activity, uh, and the three S's, sleep, uh, stress, and social, having social participation. Those, those eight things can add up to 19 years uh, of healthy longevity. They can lower our biological age, which is the actual number of candles we should be blowing out, not our chronological age. Um, so a gentleman came in two weeks ago, um, he's 59, about to turn 60, I'm 60. Uh, his goal is to have a six pack, he says I already have it, uh, but uh, it's, it's uh, my diet right now. Um, but in 20 years, when he's 70, he wants to be the most fit of his whole life. That is his goal. Wow. Um, yeah. so, so adjustments that doesn't even enter the equation. Uh, has has no role at all. Um, where we do recovery work, which is where manual therapy and adjustments fit in and soft tissue work and lasers and all that stuff, um, you, as David Joyce, the great um, uh, performance coach in Australia with the Sydney Giants says, you earn your recovery. So Kawhi Leonard gets all the recovery work he wants. Uh, I've worked with many great athletes and and elite athletes put so much stress through their body and for that to be a positive adaptation rather than a negative adaptation so that they can uh, perform at the highest level as soon as possible again or train if it's the off season, um, we need to give them recovery, a lot of recovery to enhance their readiness. Um, recovery work is a legal steroid. So the most powerful recovery tool isn't an adjustment, it's probably sleep. Secondly, it's probably hydration. So where does adjustments fit into that? Um, certainly not at the top of, of, of the list. Uh, do I like to adjust people? I love adjusting people. I'm a crack addict. <laughs> I love it. Um, but it's an elective procedure, and um, uh, it, ha it does have a, a time and a place. It, ha it has the role. Are these, what you're referring to right now, are those the upstream influences on health that you talk about in your books? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a good question. I like how you said that, Steph. So I wish I talked about them more. I'm, I'm late to the party. I've been focusing on downstream things. I've been focusing on uh, epi, epi uh, phenomenon that are um, nocebos, uneven pelvis, uh, forward head, um, forward knees, butt wink, uh, tight psoas, uh, let's call it the way Joe Rogan calls it, psoas. Um, <laughs> you know, I know so much about the psoas. <laughs> and I've been giving people the, the psoas nocebo for so long. Um, we work at the acceptable level of uncertainty. Um, you know, if you look at Taoism, they talk about um, um, uh, the ocean is greater than all the rivers because it lies below them, so they all flow into it. We want to um, be humble before knowledge, and we should never be arrogant that we have um, uh, discovered something um, we're always we're always learning and mostly what we're learning is is what we got wrong sorry i'm trying to shut down my notifications for <laughs> my emails or calendars you're popular yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I have something to add there it's it's funny that you preach this you know learn it all mindset 
and you've literally written books at different periods in your life that are kind of enshrined in a particular time and and not changing and you have to go back and and adjust kind of your beliefs based on that like not most people haven't invested enough time in their knowledge at a given point and then said wait a minute i was wrong about certain things then updated it like you're more invested in in most people you know at maintaining a certain belief system but you're constantly updating it so it should be easier for other people to do that and and then to move in the direction of saying man we need to move outside of the patient encounter towards their life right towards all the other things that are going on towards all the things that have been built up underneath the curve of their lifestyle is like how do we influence that how do we go back in time how do we go outside of you know our confined interaction um that's a huge challenge and it's like how do you, in the patient encounter, develop strategies to reach into their, to reach upstream into their life? You're sense. asking the ultimate question, yeah. Ian. Um, yeah. Laura Mosley says that we are in the behavior change game. Yeah. And uh, that's where Simon Sinek's work about getting to the why uh, mm-hmm. at Exos under the auspices of the great Mark Verstegen. Um, mm-hmm. People like Brett Bartholomew and Nicole Rodriguez speak about relatedness. Um, finding out, uh, and, and, and uh, Steffi, you asked the perfect question before, you know, how do I assess people? What's my screen? I start by learning about them. So Professor McGill does a three-hour assessment. Um, I'm going to see the person again. Uh, so my assessment is about hour 45, maybe two hours sometimes. Um, and that's to identify their KPIs, their key performance indicators. I need to know their goals, their concerns, their fears, their worries, their expectations, what they think is wrong. Um, I need to know about their current activity level and, and do a, a cute to chronic workload ratio like Tim Gabbett teaches. Um, I need to know what their prior activities were, what their prior injury history was. When I have all of those KPIs, um, and I really just let them talk. I want to hear their thoughts, their beliefs, their hunches. Um, there's a saying, your, your biography becomes your biology. So I want to listen intently, uh, empathetically, um, so that with compassion, I can get, um, I can have an epiphany about where to look for uh, relevant baselines from which to bridge the gap from their current capacity shortfall to their required capacity for their demands. So the history is history is 45 to 60 minutes. That that is the most important part of my assessment. My uh, exam, if you will, or or the tests I do are inspired by that uh, and they're made more efficient as a result of that. And were I to follow a, a screen that's a cookie cutter, it would not be relatable. So I need to know if they're a golfer, I need to look at anti-rotation and how they hinge. If they're a basketball or tennis player, I need to, to look at how they stop and start their change of direction ability. A basketball player, I need to look at their quads. How, how do they squat? How do they use, how do they extend their knees? Um, how's their ankle stiffness? Um, a runner, I have to uh, look at how they land five to eight times body weight with every, every landing. Um, so, uh, what the keys are that I'm going to explore in detail has everything to do with what's been revealed uh, in the conversation. As far as movement goes, how, how just by observation, how do you know when a particular movement deviation 
is might be the root of the person's problem? I don't. <laughs> it's so complex. There's never going to be one thing. It's it's what I've learned is is the key link is not a thing. So usually it's it's they're overprotective or they're underprepared. So if their language is full of nocebos, I have degenerative spine, I have herniated disc, I have neurospinal canal, torn rotator cuff, torn labrum, impingement, yada, 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 yada. In, you know, they use an itis, any itis instead of apathy. Um, those are all nocebos, out of alignment, um, my tight psoas, muscle imbalance. All of those tell me they're overprotective. High cortisol, sympathetic state, um, overly worried about the wrong things, and therefore underprepared. So the yin and yang is overprotective and underprepared. So the key link isn't a thing. It's it's really more a mindset. Um, and I want to get into their mindset. When they are overprotective, my job is to reassure them. We've known this for 35 years. Reassurance is job one. Uh, the prognosis is good. The pathology isn't is not a fait accompli. Uh, uh, pain, uh, not every hurt equals harm. Activity isn't dangerous. Um, we want to begin the process of reassuring them about false positives on, on imaging um, and explain that the functional pathologies are all reversible um, and that we shouldn't manage them away from load. So it's, as Gavit says, it's not the activity or load that breaks you down. It's the activity or load you're not prepared for. So we want to get on with it and the cycle of rehab purgatory. So I am really passionate about my mistake because I am guilty of what you talked about before of creating a cottage industry of people that are in love with corrective exercises. And these are as bad as people who feel they need adjustments or soft tissue work or stretching or K-tape or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's all taking away people's self-efficacy or confidence they can succeed. We should focus on positives instead of negatives. We should take a resilience approach instead of a reactive one. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the essences to what you said, Ian, about how do you get upstream and how do you, if, if, as, if as Lorimer Mosley says, we're in the behavior change game, how do we get upstream? It's by um, reassuring people and reactivating them, which ironically is what evidence-based practice has said since the mid to late 1980s. It hasn't changed. And you mentioned how I'm changing and I'm not uh, holding dear to me things that I wrote before. I got to tell you the truth. Mea culpa time. Rehab of the spine, second edition, sucks. <laughs> it, it is horrible. <laughs> it is a disaster. Rehab of the, rehab of the, the spine, third. the blue, first edition, is phenomenal. Yeah, I have a Inspiring. I love it. Still. Um, Rehab of the Spine Second Edition added a whole bunch of stuff too heavy on biomechanics, um, too heavy on motor control. Yonda is embedded in the first edition. Yonda is not about motor control. He's about motor learning. Motor learning, skill acquisition, we guide by the side. We, Wooden, John Wooden said, our greatest sport coach almost, said, don't give correction if it causes resentment. And we know if we take a skill act approach, it's about the environment. It's about dynamic systems theory and constraints-based education, which we now call gamifying. So you create the environment, you choose the skill where you know they'll be challenged at the edge of their capability, which will get them into a flow state, which will get their, their attention 
and will lower their cortisol and get endorphins, now they can adapt. Now cortical plasticity is going to just flood through their system. Uh, whereas if they're in their head, uh, we know as coaches knew in, in days gone by, um, uh, you have paralysis by analysis. Dan Path, even in a 30 second video or a 60 second video recently I shared, and it's on Twitter, said a great athlete usually can only handle one conscious cue. Some rare outliers, two or three. Uh, your job is to find out the one thing to put in their head. And that would relate to what you said, Steffi. What do you think they need to focus on that they can handle? Right. What it, it's, it's not about us. Hank Cranoff said, your program is based on their profile. We have to move away from our programs. I love it's this. It's about the person. I love this so much. I, I can't help to wonder, you know, and maybe have an answer or an opinion. Whose responsibility is it that more therapists aren't treating this way? Because I'll tell you, at least from my personal experience, one of the things that turned me off from, from the physical therapy prof profession was that cookie cutter approach to, to taking a history and eval and an exam. I just didn't feel like my patients fell into any of those molds. And I felt like the, just how I was being prepared to deal with my patients just wasn't effective and wasn't enough. You know, there's an overemphasis on special tests and an, and no emphasis at all on behaviors or on connecting with the, with the person in front of you or on gathering the most pertinent information about the person's injury, right? So is it, obviously there's, there has to be some degree of individual responsibility when it comes to, you know, I mean, information is everywhere around you. Like you just, you just have to read more, listen to more podcasts, interact with more people, I guess that is true. But at the same time, I mean, in the institution has to have some level of responsibility as well about what they're teaching to their students, right? And are you preparing them for the act for the real world or are you preparing them to pass the boards? The latter. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 you use the magic word special tests. I've heard it before. <laughs> special tests aren't so special. Love it. <laughs> so you know, we all are responsible. Um, accepting uncertainty, uh, breaking the status quo. Um, looking where vested interests are. We have a medical industrial complex today and they support um, uh, raising a dead horse over and over again. The dead <laughs> horse of passive care, the dead horse of spinal fusions, the dead horse of imaging. Um, we, we need to hold the educational institutions to the standard of evidence-based management. We learned in the 80s that reassurance and reactivation are the alpha and the omega for musculoskeletal care. And that's not just low back, that's cervical spine, shoulder, knee, hip. And we're only tightening the screws through the Lancet work on low back pain, through work from uh, Peter O'Sullivan, Ben Smith, uh, Chris Littlewood and other people, uh, whether it's shoulder, knee, hip, uh, it doesn't matter. There are, are universal principles and they're not, they're not that, um, uh, they're not about techniques. They're not even about systems. They're about processes. So really it's about how to be agile and be able to go plan B, uh, like a great coach, like Bill Belichick. Uh, Mike Tyson said, uh, plan A goes out the window. The minute you get punched in the face, you're an incredible, uh, inspiration, Steffi. 
And, and you haven't gotten where you are were it not for failure. You just are okay with failure. And so you want to learn, 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 learn. Um, if, if it was one size fits all, like you said, in physical therapy or chiropractic where we have protocols, um, you would never be where you are today. You figure out what works for you and you know your body and you learn when you need recovery and when you need tissue work, uh, when you need um, uh, uh, to change into some accessory training modes. Um, uh, every person needs to find somebody that can teach them how to do what, what you've learned to do. Because you know, one of my favorite people that I learned from is, is Coach Carmen Bott in Vancouver. Uh, her husband teaches for Pavel Satseline. Um, she's one of the few kettlebell masters who also is in a university. Pavel calls on her all the time. She guest uh, demonstrates and teaches at my courses in Vancouver. And she has the greatest line of all. She goes, think like a scientist, act like a coach. A and I, I want to steal that. I mean, that is, that is the greatest thing in the world. We always want to think like scientists, which means we're always testing. We're testing ourselves because we don't know. And then act like a coach. Like you can't just be all theory. You got to get in there, mix it up. And don't be worried if you miss. If you're a baseball player and you're worried about striking out, that's not good. Um, so uh, there are no protocols. You don't want to be a prisoner of protocols. Okay. You, 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 Rachel Balkovec talks about systems the way Dostoevsky talks about systems. The, hopefully the person who wrote the book doesn't even believe what they said 10 years ago. <laughs> and I worry about the, the vested interest of groups uh, that get stuck doing things the same way. Gray Cook, God bless Gray Cook. He said at Stanford uh, that um, he would change the scoring. He said at Stanford some of the tests uh, were proven invalid. So, you know, we'd like to see the 2.0. But I think the ultimate thing is to realize that the principles of the FMS are what we should follow, not not a specific set of tests. Hmm. Interesting. I have a few questions. I have actually two questions based on what we've discussed. So, well, the first one, since we're talking about being a coach, do you still keep up with your with your DC um, continuing ed? Like to keep your license? He tried to get me in trouble. <laughs> I hope he does. This is terrible. This the board is going to come down on me. I, I am a licensed chiropractor. Uh, Here's what I ask. Here's why I ask. So I graduated a year and a half ago from PT school, and I didn't take my boards. Okay, I was like I said, I was just so turned off, just so I don't know, so over it. I didn't want anything to do with it. And, uh, recently I started taking on personal training clients as a coach in my own gym. And I got a message the other day asking if, you know, if I worked as a PT and I said, no, I work as a coach. However, I use, <laughs> I use yeah. all the knowledge that I learned in PT school to make the best decisions with my with my athletes, with my clients. And I think it was that question that kind of made me finally be at peace with my decision of not taking my boards and be at peace with where I am right now in my career, you know, because, because a lot of people, especially my classmates really criticized that decision and found it frowned upon that I went through school and I'm not, and I wasted three years of my life. Right. And I'm like, no, I mean, there's no knowledge that is ever wasted. 
right? I went to school. I learned a ton. I evolved as a, as a person. I, you know, I met all these wonderful people and now I use that knowledge to get me further in life in, in, in other areas. Right. So that's why I ask if you kept you're your, an, you're an inspiration. You're an inspiration. You're an inspiration. <laughs> I'm learning. No, you're you're echoing you're echoing my faculty, Ryan Chow, who doesn't call his patients patients. They're clients. The and it's all about the social. So the biopsychosocial, the pain science, biomechanics dichotomy has has just altered the landscape. We have forgotten about the social. It's all about the environment. It's all about the person and the context. So person-centered training or programming or coaching and us is, is destroyed when the person is a patient, when the environment is a clinic, when we call them a patient. They're not a patient. They're a person. They're a human being. And we don't want to medicalize the interaction. So Ryan refers to all the people he sees as clients. And there's no separate room for the special tests. <laughs> there's no like, this is like an FBI. Uh, I know how to like interrogate people. Like I've got the room and, and, and everything is special. We're at the right angles. You know, we're watching people move like Dan Papp says. It's an immersion in the basic training elements. And, and while we're doing that, the history comes out on its own. Even though I spend 45 minutes on the history, the best part of the history is when they start moving and it's, it just, un, it just flowers. And I never know when it's going to come, but I wait for it. I just keep waiting until the epiphany happens. It's, it's an intuitive art. Um, and it wouldn't happen with special tests and it wouldn't happen in the confines of a room with a table. Um, it happens on the floor. So I want to challenge people at, at their edge and, see what their expectations are. Uh, I want to teach them that the motion is the lotion and that, that, that what's happened is that the hurt they feel has become the feeling they hurt. Mm -hmm. And the only way to reverse that is to give them a positive experience with movement. So, so we want them to grasp the pain science idea that if you want your body to feel better, feel your body move better. Yet everybody else is telling them they move badly. Even the great cook line, well, first move well, then move often. Well, what's well? We got to ask what's well. It, a two is moving well in his zero to three. It's acceptable dysfunction. Mm -hmm. so, so I just want to, like Greg Glassman does at CrossFit, get people in the mud. And they're going to learn in the mud if I gamify it in a fun way where they feel safe. Maslow had it right, Abraham Maslow. We create a safe environment. We create the constraints, we challenge them, and it violates their expectations that hurt equals harm or activity is harmful. And lo and behold, they start to have these stuffy experiences where it's not a protocol, it's not an adjustment, it's not a muscle balancing thing, it's not correctives. It's, wow, I had no idea I could lift that weight. And, and that is the, the thing that is the game changer for people. They, when they have a positive experience with movement, at the edge of their capability, um, uh, that's the greatest uh, uh, alteration in their mindset. That gives them the growth mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Cap, you got anything to add before I switch topics? 
Yeah, I think, um, right, you described what's not in your clinic. I think for people that don't know and don't see your Instagram, can you describe some of the things that are in your facility? Well, all, all the things are in my clinic. I mean, yeah. there's some stim somewhere. Yeah, um, okay. So uh, there's a table, there's face paper, there's a lot of Clorox bleach right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right you're now, lucky. Got tons of this. How'd you get your hands uh, on that? Are you uh, selling? We've. We, what? Are you selling some of that? It's a hot commodity right no, now. <laughs> no. Uh, we, we, what do I not have? Uh, well, I need more plates. I don't have enough plates. So there's not enough plates, Ian. Mm. Or is it cap? There's not yeah. enough plates. Can I say that again? There's not <laughs> enough plates. I need um, some more kettlebells because I only have singles of some of the weights. I need doubles. Um, we need more room. I want a second squat rack. That warms yeah, my, my heart. Yeah, my point was, right, most people don't have any weights. No. Right. Well, and you can do body weight. This is the day of body weight. Uh, exactly. COVID-19 home workouts. Yeah. You know, it's not about training. It's about activity. Mm-hmm. Let, let's, let's not – I don't want people to think that uh, I believe everybody needs to be a power lifter or an O lifter or be highly, you know, advanced and strong first or RKC. The World Health Organization has come out and said that we need 30 minutes a day of moderate intensity activity five days a week or a little bit less of vigorous activity. That's the foundation is activity. Walk your dog, get your heart rate, huff and puff, do push-ups, go for a short sprint, go for a hike. Um, Huffing and puffing is, is the goal. We can keep it simple. But we also need twice a week of strength training. And we need twice a week of strength training in fundamental movements like the squat, in spite of the fact that we all have people we see who've been told not to squat. The doctor says rest, the physical therapist babies them, and they're afraid of squatting. Um, 12-month-olds are squatting. And if 90-year-olds can't squat, they go, to, they go to a nursing home. Cradle to grave, we have to squat. Lunging, if you can't do a single leg bias activity, you're at risk of a fall going downstairs. The fall risk is up 400% in the last 20 years. We have, we have accelerated sarcopenia. We all kind of peak around 28 unless we follow people like Steffi. Uh, we have the beginning of atrophy at 30. It's measurable by 40, 1 to 1.4% per year, 8% per decade, 40s, 50s, 60s. But it's reversible. If somebody is 75 years old and they've been sedentary for two decades, we know if we science the shit out of it, that you can reverse that with a few times a week of resistance training over just a few months because of what? Cortical plasticity. So can you teach an old dog new tricks? Absolutely. So I'm don't so hyped right now. Don't get me started. <laughs> yes. I hope my mom listens training. to this podcast. <laughs> General activity plus strength training. And, and I am probably stronger today than I've ever been, and I'm 60 years old. Now, mind you, my training age is, is infantile. I did sports, but I never went in the gym. Um, and I want to learn how to bench, and I'm coming to Florida, Stephanie, and I need to learn how to bench. I've got oh, yeah. such – I am so lame. <laughs> I'm so bad. When are you going to be in Florida? <laughs> In June, God, God willing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we'll have to run them through a session. Um, yeah, absolutely. Craig, I wanted to ask you a question. You mentioned um, motor learning and motor control. I just wanted to go back there for a second. Can you give me 
can you explain to me the difference between motor learning and motor control? Just because motor control seems to be that one word that every single therapist clings on. <laughs> you know, oh, we're gonna, you know, it's just Improve a matter motor of motor control. We're gonna like teach your muscles how to activate in the right pattern at the right order at the right time. So, can we talk about that distinction and and why motor learning is a better? Um, yeah, con or concept or wording Schema to framing, use. Yeah. Framing, yeah. Well, I think everybody should want to throw away their licenses because that's the smartest question any physical therapist ever asked me. <laughs> uh, motor control, and Matt Lowe did a great uh, paper on this, which I'll, I'll send to anybody that wants to email me. Um, in Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. The ideas about biomechanics and motor control have dominated physical therapy and the rehab field. Um, and there's um, not really great evidence for it. Uh, Daniela Vaz also wrote a paper and those two papers together uh, each came out in the last two or three years. She's uh, from Brazil and uh, she says that the whole experiment through treating stroke and cerebral palsy, et cetera, spinal cord injury, and trying to break movements down into parts and train the parts with motor control exercises um, in the hopes that later the person would reassemble the parts into the functional activities where they need to be able to feed themselves or cut things or break things or carry things or, or do prehensile tasks is a fallacy. It is a fantasy. Um, uh, Daniela Vaz and Matt Lowe's work really, really drives all of this home. Specifically, what I learned in researching for the Functional Training Handbook, the last two chapters, is the skill world, the skill acquisition world, goes back to the work of people like Davids and Newell. Yeah, Keith um, Davids. Davids really talks about uh, ecological validity. And in, in when we create a task that has ecological validity that promotes skill acquisition so something like in a uh, archer or a rifle a person shooting a gun the quiet eye um, learning to have a quiet eye can distinguish uh, the elite amongst the elite from those that are let's say not quite world champion uh, or olympic champion um, motor learning is where a person problem solves on their own Motor control is where you say bring your shoulder back and down. So Gab Wolf's work on internal and external cueing. Internal cueing or putting your hands on a person, telling them what to do, that's all motor control. That does not lead to any transfer. It doesn't lead to residual adaptation because they didn't figure it out themselves. When you create the environment, you create the drill, you create the constraint, and they figure it out for themselves, that's motor learning. They're learning what to do. So creating the environment that captures the, the challenge that puts them at the edge of their capability um, and stretches them, that's all motor learning. But once you step in and you're not guiding by the side, but you're in their face and you're telling them what to do, even if it looks good, like in blocked practice uh, versus random practice, uh, it's fool's gold. I love that so much. Ian, you and I spoke, actually, I think we wrote an entire chapter about motor learning and how to cue people as a coach. We're working on our curriculum for coaches. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I said, look, I've never gone, I've attended multiple personal training uh, 
weekend certification courses and I've never seen anyone talk about motor learning about how to coach someone about how much feed feedback you should be giving them how often what should you be saying should you be cueing them with your hands verbally and I think this is such an important conversation not only obviously for PTs and chiros but for for coaches because yeah. what I see all the time in in gyms is Literally, uh, just either a, a personal trainer maybe counting every single rep and giving them feedback in front of a mirror, telling them what to do after every rep, or even Olympic weightlifting coaches. And you you can see how dependent the athletes become on the trainer or on the coach mm -hmm. because literally after every single rep, they're waiting. They're looking, they're looking for feedback. They have right. no idea what they did. They just turn around. They're like, did I do? What did I do? Or mid rep. I'm like, man, <laughs> why do you need that? It's, you see it all funny. the time. You know, I never thought about it, but it is so prevalent in Olympic weightlifting. I remember every time I do a snatch, as soon as the bar hit the ground, I'm just looking at my coach. Yeah. My, my O lifting coach, Derek Johnson, um, is the most positive coach in the world. And, and that's a big part of this, too. It's not only external versus internal cueing and less words and more inflection. It's also positive coaching. Uh, in Functional Training Handbook, one of the things that came out was uh, the research shows quite clearly that correcting faults does not change behavior for the better. But um, uh, uh, complimenting people on, on successes reinforces the positives. A lot of this is 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 goes back to John Wooden. Yeah, play back the wins. Play back the wins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, Brett Bartholomew is great on this stuff too. All the Exos coaches, they they they, they have this in spades. Create a positive environment. You know, at Exos, they don't even do one-on-one -on -one training. So talk about uh, uh, Steffi uh, not calling people patients, but referring to them as clients. And we're coaches, not physical therapists or doctors or chiropractors. Um, uh, the idea that um, uh, we want to gamify things and make it fun um, and guide by the side, all of these different ideas, uh, they all create this atmosphere uh, that is more sticky, uh, more myelination. Yeah. I think now, now that I heard you say that, I think that there's also some some kind of weird ego thing at least that's what i what i see what i saw during my my time in school about you know the whole white coat thing and being in healthcare and if people call you a personal trainer they take it as an offense like i, I remember my classmates would tell me all the time that they felt offended if someone thought they were a personal trainer mm. but you know there's so much that we can learn from you know personal trainers and there's so much personal trainers can learn from us that Uh, obviously, I don't think either is necessarily bad. I, I respect and appreciate both professions a lot. And there's a ton of overlap between the and two. And there's a ton yeah. of overlap. But yeah, like you said, I mean, I think there's, I think more, we should be acting more like coaches and, and be able to incorporate elements of both into our Ooh. approach. And great sport coaches. Yes. Right. The so great soccer coaches. Absolutely. Have principles that they apply. Mm -hmm. Right. In wicked environments, as uh, David Epstein puts it, I think the ecological dynamics and kind of you know dynamic systems theory approach to movement is coming, right? It's kind of the wave is building, um, and I think we'll see more and more of that as pe as it becomes translatable to people's practice. Because right, it started in experimental psychology research and then applied to field sports where it makes a little more sense intuitively, and then we realize that it applies to people. 
right, in all movement environments. That's that's a great point, Cap, because I think where the rubber hits the road is the Formula One level of stress testing. So yeah. the skill coach yeah. knows what it takes. Steffi knows yeah. what it takes to be able to lift. Um, and you know if you don't want somebody talking a lot or yeah. uh, if you do better when somebody is guiding by the side and, and they're um, uh, uh, just giving you uh, one simple cue to think about mm. or more of a minimalist approach. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to send you a video of our buddy who uh, hates being cued. And <laughs> he has uh, someone who trains with him all the time who can't help but constantly cue him. So in a lot of the videos, it's just, remember, it's just him screaming at the guy to shut up in the middle of his reps. It's Chris Duffin. It's Chris Duffin. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know. Shut up. Yeah. We love him. He was just here like three weeks ago. Oh, right. uh, he's, doing his, he's doing his thing still tomorrow. They canceled the big program in San Diego, but he's doing it in Portland. Oh, oh wow. wow. I can't wait to watch. Yeah, tomorrow. Wow. It's his, his feats of strength, no? His yes. squat. Wow. Thousand pounds, multiple reps. Man, I hope he gets it. I hope he has a really good day. Yeah. Yeah, every Chris, th- all the stars have to amazing. for that. So I didn't know who Chris was, but he took uh, all of my courses, was the first one to arrive and the last to leave. Wow. In the middle of the second weekend, when I realized, <laughs> realized his background, we're, I'm teaching hinging, and I'm like, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> Chris, do you mind coming up here? And we got a 30-minute impromptu, spontaneous, unplanned. And we recorded this, Steffi. Uh, Chris Duffin uh, tutoring session. It was insane. Yeah, it's amazing. We're talking I about him. positive coaching. Cool. I was the example, and he didn't say anything negative. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. He's all self-learned, self-taught. Yeah. It's amazing. No learn, learn at all. Yeah. Oh, my God. Talk about special tests. None of the tests apply to Chris. Of course. <laughs> Not surprised. Nothing, nothing human applies to him at this no. point. <laughs> hey, before we wrap it up, I wanted to talk about your book, Spine Rehabilitation. Yes. What, uh, you, you said you're coming up with a second edition? That one? Well, it's the, the third. The, the third, third is out. The yeah. third is out. The third is out. Came out uh, around Christmas, um, and uh, it's really a redirect. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis, as you said, on the upstream factors. Yep. Uh, the determinants of health. Um, a lot about social. A lot about handling complex systems and dealing with uncertainty in an agile way. Um, there is a, a, a ebook with it with hundreds and hundreds of videos that can be very valuable right now for people uh, to train their clients, to work with their patients online. Um, We uh, put in basically four principles, which is what I teach in First Principles of Movement, my seminars. Uh, The first principle is all about reassurance. Um, The uh, second principle is about reactivation. The third principle is about resilience. And the fourth principle is about optionality. Uh, so those are all, uh, we do a deep dive on those four principles, which I think um, are things which are like an umbrella for us that we apply to every patient encounter uh, when we're seeking the hardest thing they do well in order to give people a positive experience with movement, in order to give them tangible hope uh, and to create an achievable plan. So um, I always want people to feel empowered. Um, and the book is, is really um a deep dive for me. It took seven years. Uh, uh, it was three or four years overdue. 
Um, but uh, as it turned out, I'm grateful because I feel like people were falling in a trap of dichotomizing uh, the bio and the psycho, the pain science and the biomechanics. And I'm really grateful that um, I was able to um, rewrite the biomechanics chapter and make it more about behavioral modification uh, and really much more about um, how little we know rather than saying like this is the mechanism of injury and we know this and we know that. I think that, that, that it's important to know those things, but I think it's also important to know the limitations of those things. You know, for instance, the Jefferson Curl. Would I ever done a Jefferson Curl before? Um, uh, the things that Marty Gallagher teaches about um, allowing flexion at the bottom of the squat. Would I have ever allowed that? No. Now I'm I'm becoming agnostic, and and I just want to learn from people like you, Steph. So I just can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to come to, to Florida. Yeah, me too. Hey, why did you why did you choose to focus on the spine? Well, I'm a chiropractor. Yeah, of course. And there's that perception, but I never focused on the spine. So Levitt and Yonda always taught about the locomotor system. And so I've always um, seen a lot of athletes. And uh, the most important thing to Yonda is the foot. So the first part of our movement prep, uh, Chad Waterbury talks about using the lacrosse ball, uh, Philip Beach in New Zealand, and Anna Hartman uh, here, another Exos uh uh, graduate, um, they talk about uh, toe sitting and primitive primal postures like cowboy sitting. Um, uh, obviously, the first MTP is uh, 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 is a default that we need, uh, or else uh, it mutes uh, hip extension and therefore glute function, and the whole posterior chain shuts down. Um, so Yonda taught that garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have normalization of sensory afferents, especially from the sole of the foot, you're going to have a faulty motor program. So he never taught corrective exercises. This is like, like I remembered that like in communist Czechoslovakia, they, they knew people weren't motivated. So you had to, to stimulate through gamification, um, uh, normalization of the sensory motor access. And for Yonda, the, the greatest return on investment came from normalizing afferents from the sole of the foot. And I've forgotten that. I dove into all of the motor control corrective exercises. And, and it wasn't until I started to, to learn how to squat and deadlift and, and now uh, recently how to press that I realized uh, that it wasn't about correctives, but it was about movement prep. And the most important part of the movement prep was, was a gift from Yonda to normalize afferents from the feet. So I always train barefoot. Um, uh, I don't care if I don't lift as much because I don't have a wedge. It, the, for me, it's not about how much. Um, and um, uh, I think that uh, all these things now are kind of coming together in these agile principles that, that, that we teach that are agnostic. Um, I don't put anybody down. Like, I think everybody should go to BackFit Pro. I think everybody should go to DNS. Everybody should see Dre and do FRC and FCS and everybody should do SFMA and FMS and everybody should get weightlifting certifications. Um, the more, the broader your base, the better. Uh, but just realize that, um, uh, one isn't better than the other. Um, realize that, that it's about the person and, and we want people to be less protective and more prepared, uh, especially against the tyranny of the medicalization such as oh you have hurt 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 that you have you have wear and tear 
and hurt equals harm and, and stop doing activities. Uh, you're 50 years old, learn to live with it. Oh my God, like I can hear this every <laughs> patient. Every new patient, it's the same, the same iatrogenic message. It, it never ends and the creativity of, the, of chiropractors and doctors and PTs to offer nocebos it is, so, is such a tragedy of our times. We're managing people away from load. We're older, younger. A 50-year-old cave woman was so much younger biologically than a 50-year-old today. Stephen Hawking, before he died, recorded a 57-second video. He concluded it by saying the cause of most disease is we move too little and eat too much. And why it is more people don't realize this is beyond my imagination. So, so it's our job to give a positive message. I love positive that. Positive coaches. I love that. Have you uh, watched the Louis C.K.'s bit on the ankle? Have you watched that? Uh, I've seen the one with the bit with the doctor eating a sandwich about the chiropractor. <laughs> oh my gosh! No, I'm gonna send you this. And one the clothesline. The, the clothesline. <laughs> your spine is a clothesline. It's a sandwich. <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but the one on the about the ankle is hilarious. It's about he goes to get his ankle checked, and and uh, the doctor that he goes to is like, yeah. You just have a shitty ankle. Now you have to, you know, do these stretches. And he's like, oh, yeah. For how long? For how long? What did he say? Forever. That's just something you do now. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, you know, the clothesline one is your spine isn't meant to be upright. It's meant to be horizontal. I can get behind that. Just just accept it. Back pain, this is just part of being upright. (laughs) But I disagree. We're designed to be upright. We've been fully upright for eight or nine million years. This is our design. We're not designed to sit. That's what Yonda taught. And now what do we have? We have an inactivity crisis. We have childhood obesity. Um, This is we have people being told that 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 activity is dangerous. Blows my mind. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I love that head shake. (laughs) It's it's criminal. It should be malpractice. I'm with you. These messages. So, no, we're, we're old, young. And uh, we have 85-year-olds with the immune system of 20-year-olds. In London, they studied the octogenarians who are endurance cyclists. Uh, going back to the, the cave woman, if you look at industrial-age people, industrial-age people, we have their bones. They have less arthritis. They had a harder life. If we look at x-ray, if we, if we look at x-rays of people from the 1940s less arthritis yet you see a doctor today with and they do an x-ray to see what's wrong i'm calling bullshit you take the x-ray of course you see wrinkles inside the body and then you tell the person that they have wear and tear learn to live with it you're 50 that doesn't make any sense that's not science that's that is dogma where does that come from even uh it comes from the vested interest uh, that leads to cognitive dissonance, where uh, it, it comes from the Swiss drug companies and the opiates that are being pushed. Because um, if a person uh, can be active, then they don't need opiates. If if a person is not doesn't have a permanent problem that's causing their pain that you can't change. Um, then, um, then you, the, you wouldn't be giving them rehabilitation and telling them to stay active. So we tell somebody there's something wrong that's irreversible. That's a terrible thing to say. And now you have no option but symptomatic care. Mm-hmm. 
And when the, the low-level symptomatic care doesn't work, now you do higher-level symptomatic care that has side effects like the opiates. Mm -hmm. And when these things don't work, when you can't live with it anymore, you're doing experimental things like stem cells, which lack much evidence, and then you're doing heroic solutions like surgeries. We have it all backwards. Instead of reassuring people and reactivating them, uh, we're telling them to rest. Rest isn't best. Rest equals rest. So we, the whole thing... The emperor has no clothes. Don't don't get me started. <laughs> You're, You're already started. This is this is this is your fault. <laughs> this is a mission. I mean, Ryan Chow and I and Laura Latham, uh, Chad Buell and Tim Latham through FPM, we're we are on a mission to take Yonda's idea about um, the uh, erosion of the human species. Uh, we've gone from from Homo sapien to Homo sedentarius. Um, and we're designed to be upright, and people are telling people, oh, you have a sway back. Uh, especially a woman. A, a woman has more lumbar curve than a man. Why? For the final trimester, or else you'd fall over. You're designed for that because of the forward displacement of the fetus. Uh, and then women are afraid to do squats because they feel it in their back. Well, you have more lordosis, and if you don't do squats, if all you do is non-weight-bearing exercise like walking, while it's necessary, it's not sufficient to prevent osteoporosis. And the hurt does not equal harm. You've managed yourself away from load. You've been told maybe you have a spondy or something. Mm -hmm. That is not the cause of your pain. The cause of your pain is a negative adaptation, and you've been sitting too much. So Stephy's not going to give you load. You're going to do body weight at first. Then maybe you'll go overhead, which is more strenuous, but that hurt doesn't necessarily equal harm. And then we're going to work your pillar and we're going to get your anterior chain more active. And lo and behold, you're going to be handling load. And lo and behold, you're going to forget all about the fact that it was sensitive. Mm -hmm. So the foreground pain because of the nocebo of somebody scaring you with your scan, telling you you have a condition called a spondy or you have a sway back or a lower cross syndrome, um, all of that falls into the background. Now you have a healthy, robust arch, mm -hmm. and you can bench press from this arch and back squat from this arch. Mm -hmm. and, and the hurt doesn't necessarily equal harm. In fact, you're feeling doms in your quads and your glutes the next day. You're feeling your core activate. The, the, the joints compressing is a trivial side of it, I not guess. something to become a fragilista about. Yeah. But yet that's what we focus on. Yeah. And now you get osteoporosis and sarcopenia. Yeah, absolutely. I it's it's so easy to fall into that cycle of deconditioning. I'll tell you from just from personal experience, I've been having back pain for about on and off for like three years. And the worst that it's ever gotten, it's because I but you know through, through asking several people, I pretty much convinced myself that I was doing too much, quote unquote. So I started removing and removing and removing training sessions, less days, less frequency, less load, less intensity, and went from being able to tolerate, say, four squat sessions a week, three deadlift sessions, four bench days, and some conditioning to... It is a lot, but I was doing fine and I was progressing. I'm saying you're doing, yeah, that's doing, that's doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. and I yeah. was doing great to yeah. barely being able to squat twice a week and one in deadlifting every once every 10 days. And mm -hmm. it was actually a conversation that I had with, um, uh, Greg Lehman on my, on my podcast where he suggested to do the complete opposite that he suggested, Hey, why don't you try actually increasing the frequency? Try squatting every day, deadlifting every day. Teach your body 
to normalize mm-hmm. the the pain signal, just right? Adjust the the load. Adjust the load based on based on what you're feeling that day, but instead of removing because what what you're gonna you're gonna end up not being able to squat at all if you keep taking training sessions away and uh i've been feeling a lot better so but it's hard like even for me even for me that i understand all these concepts that you're talking about pain doesn't equal harm you know wrinkles on the inside i keep i kept repeating all these things in my head and even then I found it really hard to not be a victim of the everything that I've learned over the years. Mm-hmm. But, and I think to most people, it's just a step that makes sense. You know, they get hurt doing a certain exercise and then they associate pain with that exercise. Yeah. And when you've done that for so long, it's just, it's really hard to break away from even with the knowledge that you have. Yeah. So imagine for people who don't have the knowledge base that you have, you know, it's, it's, a huge responsibility for you, people like you and and Craig and other people in the industry to unteach everybody all this stuff. It's pretty wild. That's yeah. a great point. It is so hard. Educating people is the foundation and the most important step, and it's the hardest step. Mm-hmm. Mo- Laura Mosley talks a lot about how we all take it for granted as if we are behavioral psychologists taking people's fears and their worries and their preconceived ideas um, and changing them. Like, I feel like I can help an anxious person uh, very easily, but, but Lorimer talks about the people with fixed mindsets, the know-it-alls. Oh, those are the worst. <laughs> They're the worst. Yeah. The worst. You, you and Lorimer, you should have him on your podcast. You would I would love, love that. Lorimer. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm familiar with him. That's, that's his, 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 kind of surprising thing. A lot of us think the anxious catastrophizer, the fear avoidant person, but no, those people, it's easy to give them a positive experience with movement. Everybody else just quit, gave up on them, managed them away from load, corrective exercise, the motor control, soft tissue, just getting sucked into all that stuff. But um, the fixed mindset person, like they may be a weekend warrior and they don't want to train for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go, oh, I've been doing this my whole life. Or they still want to go really hard, uh, but they're not giving themselves recovery. I am. Um, uh, a few years ago, I was volunteering at Wadapalooza, the CrossFit festival, as a, as a for my hours for a PT school. And I remember being there on the treatment table. I'm all excited to like be working only with athletes. I had never had that opportunity before. And 10 out of 10 people who came to my table would tell me what they wanted me to do to them. Like they'd be like, so yeah, you know, my rotator cuff is irritated. It's mainly because of my posture, I'm really internally rotated. My pecs are really tight and my subscaps also has some, and I'm like, eh. An adhesion. An adhesion in my subscap. And I'm like, Excuse me, who's the one with a degree hanging up there? (laughs) (laughs) Just crazy. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's it's really hard to change people's um, beliefs Mm -hmm. because apparently everyone is a fitness expert. But it's it's good. I mean, people like you are getting more of a platform now and uh, it's allowing you to combat a lot of that misinformation that otherwise just would have gone unchecked before the era of social media. And so. you know what I love the most is that 
accidentally we're forming a network of like-minded individuals. Like we find each other, right? Yeah. I had Greg, Greg on my podcast. Now I'm having you. Then I'll connect with Lorimer and we're all fighting this. Even, um, Kelly Starrett, mm-hmm. we're all fighting the same, the same fight. And we're all, it's, we're feeding off each other and making the message so much more powerful because we're finally saying something in unison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's an attractive message. Sometimes we're like, oh, the fix-it approach is attractive. But really, when you give people their power back, that's really, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are ready for that. And the people who are looking for the, the fix-it um, kind of look for a problem, one day will we'll realize that they have, you know, they have a lot more power than they realize. It's tempting to want to be a superhero, though, when, yeah. you're, when you've gone through chiropractic school. Yeah therapy school yeah. uh, the Alfred model over the Batman model is is not a, a very easy sell yeah well from the protect you know from the clinician's perspective yeah I've heard people get in front of rooms and say don't you want to be a hero you know I'm like oh I don't think what I do <laughs> is is very marketable um, yeah but that's not why I do it right and Dr. Levitt always said that too I, like we're not teaching uh, the the chiropractor or the physical therapist, um, a business model. Um, but now what I'm seeing is there's a new generation like, like Dr. Ryan Chow who are figuring out how this is lock, stock, and barrel in step with the modern mindset about lifestyle coaching. And so there is a whole new, uh, whole new consciousness. I think people are, are, are really becoming woke now and they're starting to gain consciousness. Look at what's happening with COVID-19. The Venice canals are clearing. The air over Beijing is clearing. I think, Steffi, that, that I'll be teaching fewer seminars. I'm thinking more about uh, this Zoom platform, webinars. Uh, how can I get, uh, how can we get more from less? How can we get the most from the least, like Marty Gallagher says? I have to, to make my message as lean as possible because you shouldn't have to, to, to come to three of my face-to-face courses or four of my face-to-face courses. I should be able to do it in, in one or two. And then we can meet in this format with a group of 20 or 40 people. Um, we, can, we can say, screw it to the airlines. I don't wanna see the airlines go back to where they were. Or why should we empower this, this idiot, this prince in Saudi Arabia? There is no reason why we should empower him. And, and if there's a consolidation in the airline industry, so be it. If the stock market goes down, so be it. We, we need to, people should be working at home more. Mm-hmm. Do, do we need to be in cars as much? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, an event of, of, of the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to go back to World War II for something that can change consciousness like this. This is, this is deeper and wider than 9-11. But only if we reflect in this time we have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see how things are going to change, what kind of adjustments are going to be made in the workplace and what kind of changes people are going to make in their personal lives after this. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but let's open up for, for a few questions. Let's say, what, five? Yeah. Yeah. Five, I mean, or... In- if they're quick ones, then we'll see until we stop getting good ones. We'll say. Guys, drop the, uh, questions. Drop questions on the chat. Anyone who's tuning in on the live screen. 
or live stream. Sorry. There's one up there, I think. You want to read it, Cap? Yeah. So, greetings, doctor. For example, if someone does an exercise in a bad way, like a good amount of lumbar rounding during deadlifts for years, will the injury risk due to tissue adaptation, I mean, I guess, increase? And is the tissue adaptation more important than biomechanical advantage? Wow. You nailed it. <laughs> I think you know the answer more than me. Uh, that's the way to frame it. I don't think we mm-hmm. know. We used yeah. to say that you needed to avoid a butt wink, and we never talked about adaptation. Mm-hmm. We used to say that there's correct and incorrect, and um, the vertebrae should be wedged so they're open anteriorly, and that prevents the nuclear material from moving posteriorly. Um, and, um, you know, you should, uh, <coughs> as Gray Cook did in his overhead squat test, uh, say that it's a fail if. Uh, uh, at your depth, your chosen depth, uh, you had full spine flexion. But people like Greg Lehman have educated us that um, we may have over-interpreted some of that, uh, those biomechanical ideas. Mm-hmm. And we've also failed to appreciate uh, the entire field of adaptation. Yes. So, you know, we need a recoverable stress. If you're going to do a Jefferson curl or flexion, uh, end range flexion or extension, I think you got to go gradual. Slow cooking is, is the rule of thumb here. Mm-hmm. Um, and different people are going to have different ball and socket joints. Uh, different people are going to be able to handle the bar differently because of their shoulder. Uh, so I, I think there's variability in the response. I don't think that we should be so uh, sure. We should be more unsure. <laughs> Uncertainty would be the answer. But your, your question is genius. Yeah, one thing that uh, Greg Lehman said that really stuck with me is like the, the biomechanists don't agree about the biomechanics. <laughs> like, why why can we be so sure? <laughs> I love Greg. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, there's a couple here. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. That's not just a question for me. Uh, okay, that's yeah. Stephanie, you want Come on. No, go ahead, Cap. Um, I mean, I think I would really just kind of build on what what Craig was saying. I mean, we we really need to establish the limits of what we think people's adaptive capacities are. I mean, I think we can think that people are 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 kind of extraordinarily adaptable, but they might not be infinitely or instantly adaptable. So we need to give them that progression. Right. I always use the analogy. You don't throw people into the deep end when they've never swam before. Mm-hmm. Right, but you can you can get pretty much anyone to swim. You can get infants to swim with an, with enough exposure. So it, so it really is. I love that phrase of slow cooking it, but right. And then, so what that means is we can't think in terms of of one thing like doing a deadlift with a certain spine position being meaningful for injury risk because we can't kind of post hoc establish whether that was the thing that caused the thing. Right, we can't we can't create that causal link based on that person's experience. All we can do is interpret the best evidence we have, and the best evidence we have suggests that people who round their back slightly, independent of other factors, don't actually get hurt more than people who don't, mm-hmm. because the amount of flexion they experience is pretty much the same, mm-hmm. especially in the the segments that generally are vulnerable. Right, and yeah. it might be it might be a preparation you know uh, thing that's, more that's more smart. so than a mechanic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right, we've talked about it a lot, and we'll continue to rehammer that because that's a big thing in our world about how important is technique, is 
you know, is technique just, you know, dead? Are we all technique nihilists or are we technique agnostic or are we kind of person centered in our, in our kind of discussion of technique, which is why I like the subtitle of your book so much. I, yeah. I, I want to say something about what you just said. I think there is a limit though. Yeah. And maybe it's that I can't completely shed some of my preconceived ideas from the past, but I think that, um, technical proficiency is important. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, in the rehab it's, it's important for body weight, mm-hmm. but I think the nocebo of, of telling somebody they're in danger if they violate technical proficiency is even worse. So I see people walking around like robots. I do want them to know how to hinge uh, when they lift, but, but it's even worse if they're overbraced and holding their breath. So, and, and then at the higher level, the other end of the spectrum, at the elite level, I think when you're putting that kind of uh, uh, load times volume, uh, intensity times volume uh, through different structures, uh, that um, I'm less agnostic. So I yeah. higher levels uh, that that we have to go back to people like Steffi, mm-hmm. like Duffin, and 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 learn from them about what the standards are. That we shouldn't just be uh, willy nilly about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when people go in the gym and they haven't had a good coach, um, and they're trying to lift heavy, I think that that's foolish. Yes, if you can add to that, right? To what degree is it self-organized? To what degree do we talk about advantage? Uh, to how do we set the environment? How do we be constraints-led coaches, right? To help people, you know, figure out the technique that's optimal for them, right? How do we become problem setters so people can build their own solutions, even in kind of high-load activities like powerlifting? where there is you know, probably a smaller room for error in terms of movement variability. But all, there it, is. all it smacks me in the face there mm-hmm. is, is Pavel's first video, Enter the Kettlebell. Mm-hmm. And, and to handle somebody who he thinks has too much flexion, he goes, the wall shall be your coach. And stand against the wall when you do the snatch or, or the sumo squat or the goblet squat. And now they're self-organizing around that constraint. Um, and he's guiding by the side. Yeah, I think, you know, to piggyback off what you guys were saying, I, I totally agree with, with what both of you said. I think another another thing to pay attention to is obviously the variations in, in movement from one individual to the other that are due to body proportions. Mm. Obviously not not cannibalizing that and not necessarily thinking that it's, you know, bad because it's not exactly the textbook movement or the norm. Um, And also taking into consideration the symptoms that come up from a particular from a particular movement. For example, someone who has a higher predisposition of patellar or quad tendonitis that has a super um, knee um, quad focused, not focused, what's the word? Quad dominant squat maybe proposing that they have a more hip dominant squat so changing their stance opening their opening their their feet teaching switching them to a low bar switching position. to a low bar teaching them how to hinge better all of those things are technical alterations that could potentially uh, improve someone's pain perception mm-hmm. you kind of touched on the the question someone had here where it said won't an individual 
an individual's levers uh, drive personal technique. Yeah. One of many things, right? Yeah. Right. What's um, and, I, and I think that's something people can figure out, but sometimes people are dogmatic about it. Sure. But everybody's not going to squat like a Chinese weightlifter, although right. that looks great. Yeah. You know, of course, but some, people's but some Polish people with long femurs are pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Let's do one yeah. more because last one. Uh, Ian, I'll let you uh, choose it. Choose the best one. I mean, there's only three in the Q&A. Some people are are going in the chat. Oh, I didn't um, even know there was a Q&A. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we've just been looking in the chat. Okay, there's a Q&A. I think we can do both of these in the Q&A. Um, we kind of touched on soft tissue techniques, but I think there's a more general category of, of activation strategies. He mentions RPR. Um, I think he's talking about what's the role of providing short-term relief with some of these therapies in kind of this, this schema of, of, of building self-efficacy and kind of empowering clients. Like, is there a role, I think, Craig, I think you can talk about how you reconcile those, you know, kind of the benefits versus harms of, of doing those things um, and kind of when you consider implementing, in, implementing them. I think you touched on it earlier, but maybe circling back to that and other like activation strategies as this person was saying. Um, is the question about palliative care or is I the think, question about specifically about soft tissues? I think it's it's more about something that provides only like a short-term benefit. So you have palliative care. Um, is there a place for that? Or are you only looking for kind of things that have lasting effects, whatever that might mean for the patient? Or are you, are you trying to be as economic as possible? Or are you trying to get momentum by providing some early relief or can you do that without actually using those techniques, those lower value techniques a lot of the time? You got some smart people in your, your audience. Um, you know, I call that a catalyst and, and sometimes I think it's acceptable to do a catalyst, but not if you're going to take away their self-efficacy. So the key here is what Nancy Harding and, and Maureen Simmons described to uh, physical therapists. Um, it's about attribution. If the person is anxious and they are more likely to be uh, dependency prone um, and attribute to you, mm -hmm. then I withhold it. If, however, they are not anxious and they're not going to be dependency prone, then I have no problem doing passive stuff first. Mm -hmm. As a general rule of thumb, I'm a very McKenzie-oriented type of, of, of rehab person, and so I believe what he taught when he said, um, if somebody threw their back out and you are an expert in, in the spine, um, then you should be able to show them how to put their back back in. So you know, we're now talking about telemedicine and e health. Yeah. And, and there is some, uh, some evidence that you can do McKenzie approaches over telemedicine. Um, I think that the, the whole evolution of care from tabletop with a totally passive person to floor exercises, uh, to upright exercises, to multiplanar exercises, uh, from uh, that under our supervision, uh, to group exercise or self-care uh, 
and now telemedicine is the the next extension of that mm-hmm. um, is an evolution and I think that our skill is reflected in our ability to inspire what chiropractors call the innate intelligence or what what it was called by I think it was Voltaire the vis metatrix natural uh, the wisdom of the body to heal itself to be able to inspire uh, this uh, self-efficacy and to lower the cortisol and shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic our ability to give confidence um, confidence is a cornerstone of great performance according to michael drouvet that does not require that we do those passive things in fact those passive things have a dangerous side effect so if you can assure me that you're not going to face those side effects then go for it would, would be my answer. Yeah, I like it. I've, I've heard Peter Sullivan say disability is a contraindication to passive care, is a relative contraindication. Um, and I and always kind of stuck with me. person. Yeah, yeah. Who has the yellow flags. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that category. And that's another way it's flipped in, in a lot of people's minds. Um, people lack confidence. People yeah. lack self-efficacy. This is all a confidence game. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can I improve my bench press? with you, Steffi? How can I improve my deadlift? How can I improve my squat? Um, how can a patient um, gain confidence if it's a, uh, a grandmother who has back pain when she babysits the grandkids? Mm-hmm. Um, how can somebody gain confidence that they're not going to have a fall going downstairs if they're in their 70s? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, all about, it's all about confidence. And you know, Steffi, you can't lift heavy unless, unless your mind is unfettered. Absolutely. And, and that's more so true in rehab because we said it before, um, uh, the hurt you feel becomes the feeling you hurt. And what's the antidote? Um, giving people a positive experience with movement. So, mm-hmm. so I want people to, to experience that they're feeling their body move well if if you feel your body move if if you want your body to feel better then feel your body move better and 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 as cap is saying i want to create the environment the social environment it could be through telemedicine uh that is liberating for people so Mm -hmm. they can achieve that Mm -hmm. for me the best i guess the best situation to to use modalities would be on athletes that need to perform at a certain given time or place just to provide just them to with temp- them through. Yeah, to get them through. Personally. Confi- confidence. Yeah, give them confidence. Exactly. <laughs> For me as an athlete, the only time I would use E-STEM or a Norma Tech or what else do we have there? Game Ready that, or Theragon. Uh, the tape. Or, yeah, or the tape is before training. or Huh? They're all great. Yeah. If, right before training, you know, numb a little bit of the pain down. They're all Not great. Bad. You earn those things, though, I think. And exactly. I don't think in the rehab field that we're using them. <laughs> in sports medicine, yes. You know, listen, Kobe went to sleep with Stim. So That's he was using, That's he was using 24 hours of the day. That's insane. <laughs> Must have been in a lot of pain. Yeah, but using, He was using 24 hours of the day in order to promote athletic sustainability. Right. Wow. But I feel, yeah, for example, PTs really make fun of people, of, of other practitioners who use it. 
I don't understand why, because like, like I said, I think it has a time and place. Most things do. Most things do. Yeah. As long as the methods are serving the goals, just don't be a slave of the methods. It's uh, something Glenn Penlay said years back on a podcast was, I don't care if, if, uh, waking up every night at 2am doing 10 jumping jacks and going, going back to sleep works for you. You know, if, if you think it's serving your goal and you're feeling better because of it, then, then take advantage of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Craig, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We, this is honestly my favorite podcast we've recorded and also the longest one. I feel like we could talk for another two hours. (laughs) Yeah. Where uh, where can people find you and uh, find access to your your book? Uh, Amazon. Easy. Easy. Amazon for the book. Uh, my email is craigliebensondc at gmail.com, but Instagram may be easier for more people. Um, I don't know what it is on Instagram. C. I think Liebenson. you're C. Liebenson. C. Liebenson. Yeah. 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 I just tagged him. Um, and then, of course, the, our work with my faculty is First Principles of Movement. So that's the website. And that's our hashtag, First Principles of Movement. You guys are offering uh, webinars currently or no? Not yet. There's, um, there's, we have some that, we, that, that are, um, uh, we've made uh, probably about 10 hours worth. And they'll be coming available soon. That's exciting. Some, some are already on the website and have been sitting there and nobody even knows about them. But they're there. Ah, awesome. Okay. I'll help you spread yeah. the word. Thank you so, so much again. Oh, go ahead, Cap. One thing I want all the listeners to do in the spirit of Craig's Instagram is to find someone who didn't listen to this and do a teach back test. Teach them what they learned today. Right? To to solidify <laughs> learning. Cap, you nerd, just, you sending our listeners just homework. Just one or two things that that that's that resonated the most. Yeah, the, exactly the salient points. I uh, I do that with all my patients cuz I'm not a very good educator, and <laughs> and I ask them, I ask them, what would you tell your spouse? And the things that people say are shocking. Like, I'm <laughs> terrible, <laughs> and I'm trying to simplify it without making it boring. And I don't want to say the same thing a hundred times, but um, the teach back test is such. Mm-hmm. A but I have to say something before we go, Steffi. I am so elated to be to be meeting with you virtually. Uh, I can't tell you what an honor this is. I'm like going to well up in tears because you are are you're saying that you didn't that that you didn't even have to get to get your license. Like like to me, like there's nothing wrong with people getting their license. That that's a great thing if you put in the work and you want to have your license and then people can send stuff into insurance. But but to have you talk, say that like like you're just a coach and and you just want to share and it's not about the letters after your name. When I was starting off, I didn't care about letters. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Levitt wouldn't even come visit us at the chiropractic school because I was a chiropractor. Of course, he didn't know I wasn't a chiropractor. I was just a student <laughs> when he came to professor. But, but it was never about letters. It's about knowledge. Absolutely. And, you know, we're in a renaissance. This is a, uh, we're learning from everybody, and, and you, you're inspiring me so much. You have no idea. So this is an uh, incredible privilege. I want to thank you. Oh, thank you. The appreciation goes both ways. Thank you. Awesome. Let us know when you're uh, in Miami. Love to host you and keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you.